In my introductory podcast, when I described my personal story of leaving Mormonism, I covered a great deal in a relatively short episode. You see, telling life stories like this is difficult because there is so much more that can be open for discussion. So I realised that an hour and 47 minutes might seem anything but brief, but to some, I suppose, who may be used to epic monologues, it was probably very digestible. For those who have missed that first episode, I would encourage you to give it a listen. Other episodes like this should build on the themes of that pilot episode. I intend to expand some specific elements in future podcasts. Although it has to be said that I will focus on some non-Mormon themes also. My podcast is mainly focused on using knowledge historical knowledge to show the human condition and how to improve it. And if you're interested or intrigued by my observations, I would appreciate you clicking subscribe to the Drew Hunter channel. That way you will find it easier probably to access my content. I would also like to thank the thousands of listeners, as well as the many who got in contact with me after the initial episode was published. I would also like to give a shout out to Jane and Alana at 21st Century Saints who invited me onto their podcast. I enjoyed that experience. A few people have also asked me about the portrait picture I've chosen for my podcast. As I was thinking about my experience of transitioning from Mormonism to a life outside of Mormonism, I kept thinking back to my lack of true identity. So my profile picture is actually meant to represent the two sides of me. My old life as an active believing Mormon and now as a rational minded ex-member. Hence the two halves, showing the contrast between the two. Now I hope that makes sense. And for quite a lot of you who listen to this, I think it will make sense to you. So at this point, I want to explain why I create this material. I hope to create episodes that encourage critical thinking provide alternative points of view and contribute to a culture of respectful dialogue. As a historian by profession, I'll use the discipline of historical analysis to illustrate lessons that hopefully we can learn from our past. So the theme of this episode is seeking to understand another lived experience with a focus on those who are leaving or who have left Mormonism. In all my reading, I've never found a more wise and powerful description of the value we should place on respectful communication than this statement by Solomon Bennett Freehoff. Quote, Years ago, I preferred clever people. There was a joy in beholding a mind bearing thoughts quickly 
translated into words or ideas expressed in a new way. I now find that my taste has changed. Verbal fireworks often bore me. They seem motivated by self-assertion and self-display. I now prefer another type of person. One who is considerate, understanding of others, careful not to break down another person's self-respect. My preferred person today is one who is always aware of the needs of others, of their pain and fear and unhappiness, and their search for self-respect. I once liked clever people, now I like good people. Close quote. Whether it's politics, business, academia, or the expression that we have online and social media, the tendency for human dialogues to become less about objective truth and collective solutions, but to be more focused on self-aggrandizement and being right all the time is striking. I can think of little else more destructive in society than an unbridled and enabled human ego. Like some of you, I was reeled in like a fish when social media was first used online. MySpace and Bebo were amongst the favourites in our family. From those optimistic and simpler days in the early 2000s, we've arrived at a society 20 years later that realistically has a psychological dependency on having an online presence. A version of ourselves, an extension of our reality, but digitally. Avatars that exist to convey an alternative self. And perhaps for many of us, that version of ourselves on our screens is often a little manufactured for the online audience. But there is a far more toxic and destructive element that has been allowed to percolate through some carefully designed algorithms. We know it's built into the system. And, and so we have this perfect storm of instantaneous technological expression, tribal group mindsets, irrational primal brains, and limited time. The social media of the internet with its absolute technological wonderment is almost like a machine of misanthropy. It can bring out the worst in normally good people. As a species, we took great advantage of the simplicity of life in ancient Neolithic or Mesolithic societies. Our prefrontal cortex was far less bombarded with information in those ancient days. But when we perceived a potential physical threat, our fight or flight instincts usually served as well. The basal ganglia in our brains kicked in so that we could deal with any danger, wild animals or other humans. 
But now our threats tend to come in less physically threatening guises. They are mental and they are emotional. For so many people today, threats are online or they come at us as the psychological pressures of life. In their simplest form, online threats can be other people's posts, comments and opinions. For those who simply use social media as a way to document their family life, posting photographs and time away on holiday and stay in contact with people you know and love, then it's not really a threatening place as such. But it is designed as a tool to reinforce and to proselyte a thousand degrees of ignorance. So the availability of the internet has arguably become the innovation that provides the greatest potential for human progress. But sadly, in reality, it seems to be a significant contributor to mental stress and real clinical trauma. Five to 10 years ago, it was difficult to find a reasonable collection of peer-reviewed studies or literature reviews that showed the links between social media use and compromised mental health. But now we have a lot of research available to us. And therefore the issue isn't the availability of this technology. It's estimated that about 5 billion people have access to the internet across the planet. But it's the usability of it that we really should be most concerned with. The toxicity of online dialogue is real, it's palpable. And in broad general terms, it really isn't getting better. So, what has this got to do with Mormonism and leaving the Mormon church? Well, as I'd already mentioned, the internet, or social media specifically, is a crucial tool in human infrastructure and is also the primary tool of human interaction. Religion remains a significant source of human identity for billions of people. And so, the internet is, by default, another arena for religious expression. Many religious and non-religious people use it as a platform. Many dyed-in-the-wool active Mormons take the opportunity to use it as a virtual podium. And since it's meant to be a democratic user-focused medium of communication, there are a great deal of ex-Mormons and those who are questioning their Mormon religiousness who speak their minds in discussion groups also. It seems the communication problems arise as church members and those who are not members or are leaving the church share the same space. Facebook and Twitter are like base camps for keyboard warriors who find like-minded souls. People tend towards their online tribes it's a human trait 
to find the associate like-minded people who share similar values, beliefs and ideas or morals as we do. We do this because we are a species that needs reinforcement. We want to be right. This is the fault of the untamed ego, which I referred to earlier. We need to re we need this reassurance, and we can find these things in our social groups. In terms of religion or political affiliation, people primarily focus on the superiority and greatness of their own little faction, while the others are always ignorantly demonised as being misled, immoral, or in some way wrong. On social media then, we have millions of people receiving a constant tailored supply of one-sided content that reinforces pre-existing biases. It's a perpetual cycle of news that exists to stoke anger, frustration and hatred. A relentless feedback loop that maintains strongly held convictions, no matter how irrational or baseless. It is a real life turned up to a thousand. I've been a fully active and invested Mormon who has participated in many online discussions over the years. I know that I've been well-intentioned when enthusiastically telling complete strangers about the church or the gospel. I'm sure I felt justified at the time when reminding friends or complete strangers of the greatness of a certain gospel principle. On many occasions, I've watched some carry out that most bold of LDS acts as they have borne their testimony with that distinctly Mormon sense of spiritual duty. Now I mention this because I feel that I have a very slight advantage and I must emphasize that I only understand this to be an advantage insofar as I also recognize my limitations. I can retrospectively analyze and compare my behavior as a true believing Mormon with my altered behaviors outside of Mormonism. I, like many others, can look inside my past life with a trans like a translucent window. When I peer through that historical glass, I see echoes of good memories. But what I notice far more strikingly is a lifetime of manipulative control, withheld facts and ever-increasing anxiety. My story, to be fair, is only one of millions. Not every account is the same as mine. There are many Mormons who cannot conceive of such a negative description. But the whole point of me making these things public is to relate to those who share in the upheaval of a faith crisis. I have far more in common with them than I do with a committed Latter-day Saint. Over the years, I have developed a huge fascination with human interaction, how people speak to each other, 
how we engage with people and who hold opposing views, how social media discussions develop, how individuals behave in groups, how much people really listen to or consider the opinions or ideas of others. If you need any proof that modern humans are predominantly emotional, that we suspend rationality and engage in defensive juvenile behaviours, you only need to spend just a little time on a variety of social media pages. That could be news pages, political pages, religious pages. And although we will undoubtedly come across those few truly objective, open-minded and respectful individuals, more often than not, those divisive pages will continue to engender a huge amount of impatient and cantankerous rage. And please don't think that either active Mormons or ex-Mormons who engage online are the sole gatekeepers of truth, wisdom and compassion. Neither of them, I believe, hold a monopoly on reason. Although I am very much of the opinion that those who are questioning and leaving the church are far more open to different viewpoints. And it's a hell of a lot more nuanced than that. There is no doubt that the capacity for self-reflection and rational inquiry does tend to increase as people move away from a high-tariff controlling religious group. The science bears this out. The beauty of social research and historical analysis is the scope for reviewing existing trends or theories to accept new answers to age-old questions. Throughout the 60s and into the early 90s, it was the prevailing thought that religious belief and an acceptance of a deity was an intuitive and inherent human capacity. However, these ideas have really shifted towards religiosity being a product of nurture in the socio-cultural environment. Being raised in a religious home, and by extension, being raised in a religious community with all the cognitive reinforcements, is purely belief by socialisation. This isn't analytical, it isn't rational or logical, it is emotional and learned behaviour. Mormons would describe it as spiritual or as inspired. Now, if any fully active believing Mormons listen to this podcast, and I'm not sure if they will, I want to encourage you to understand that ex-members come in a variety of shades. We are an interesting mix of people who range from not being interested in the LDS Church anymore to those who are engaged in the act of uncovering truths about the organisation. Now that's a very wide spectrum. And I am well aware that there are anti-religious people, anti-Mormons, who are themselves at times in error or misleading, but also some who are mistakenly inaccurate in their comments about the LDS Church. Please remember, many Mormons don't appreciate 
being misrepresented or accused of spiteful attitudes. So I would ask my LDS friends to afford us the same level of understanding. We can't all be tarred with an indiscriminate and convenient brush. Dialogue should be intelligent and it should be patient, which is difficult to do online. In my first episode, I dealt with the question of the Mormon church being a cult. And so, in spite of many people's sensitivities, I answered that question. Mormonism is a new religious movement that possesses the primary hallmarks of a cult. I have no doubt whatsoever that significant groups of people who have left the LDS church all over the world and from a range of backgrounds have been processing clinical psychological trauma. And many of them are undiagnosed, stumbling in the dark to find answers and to get help, requiring some kind of validation and therapeutic support. I have some who have told me that they are now on the path of receiving professional therapy and I genuinely hope that those who need it, that they can receive that help. While Stephen Hassan's work on identifying a high dependency cult through his bite model is crucial to gaining perspective about the institution, I actually believe that Dr. Marlene Winnell's identification of religious trauma syndrome allows the individual to self-reflect. If true believing Mormons who are attempting to engage with family and friends who are leaving the faith would take some time to consider some of these realities, how much more healing could it be for everyone involved? The General Authority and BYU Professor of Ancient Scripture, Brad Wilcox, recently published an article in the Deseret News that sought to delegitimize religious trauma or play it down. In the article, he made reference to mainly the collective social benefits of religious practice and living. When speaking of these social benefits, he actually failed to identify the nuance of particular religious groups. He did not make any reference to high dependency religious sects, such as Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witnesses. So it seems that rather than making careful consideration of religious trauma, rather than addressing this, he focused more on the pro-social benefits of religion. Perhaps this was another attempt by a high-ranking Mormon leader to make the LDS church look more mainstream within Christianity. Perhaps it was more PR. The reality is, though, the growing number of people who leave Mormonism are doing so because of concerns about the truth claims of the institution or because of their abusive treatment by the institution. Brad Wilcox might benefit from wider reading and exposing himself to the real 
experiences of ex-members or those who are struggling with their faith. Now, I would love to hear more stories of LDS families who show basic compassion for their loved ones who are struggling through this horrendous kind of experience. You don't need to fully understand why this person is struggling. You simply need to be a loving presence in their lives. Be there for them. This is a clinical description of what is happening to people going through a faith crisis. Dr. Winnell explained religious trauma syndrome this way. Quote, Religious trauma syndrome is a function of both the chronic abuses of harmful religion and the impact of severing one's connection with one's faith and faith community. It can be compared to a combination of PTSD and complex PTSD. Losing one's faith or leaving one's religion means the death of one's previous life. The end of reality as it was understood. It is a huge shock to the system and one that needs to be recognised as trauma. Close quote. Now I can confirm that I am the process of working through that trauma. I am in a much better place than I was two or three years ago. And this is not hyperbolic posturing. It's the real deal. But equally, I'm not bowing to victimhood and using my experiences to invoke sympathy. I'm not looking for sympathy, just open-mindedness. A little bit of understanding, like many of us. I cannot help but make reference to my own children once again. Only recently has one of my daughters opened herself up on social media and described her own path in leaving Mormonism. In doing so, she was honest, insightful and willing to be vulnerable. This is probably part of her own therapy. And I'm sure I could be accused of bias, but my daughter has simply done what many have in expressing a public declaration of how something has caused her hurt, pain and emotional damage. And disappointingly and perhaps unsurprisingly, this was met yet again with some derision. Again, I cannot overstate the, this most basic of observations. We might disagree about the facts of a thing. We might even express disdain towards a certain viewpoint. But we have to be quite an irrational and insensitive individual if we criticise someone's lived experience. Invalidation is not Christ-like to my understanding. When righteous-minded people lay down their judgments, they are adding to the existing trauma. It can have a repetitive compounding effect on the person. Please accept their experiences and engage with them human to human. Egos need to be put aside. 
what has been done to anyone in the, in the world, on the planet, what anyone suffers and has gone through is out of bounds in terms of debate because it's personal lived experience. One of the most respected clinical therapy organisations describes the effects of this kind of invalidation. In both children and, I should say this is a quote here, in both children and adults, invalidation can be traumatic. It jeopardises one's sense of existence and self-worth, leading to feelings of anger, shame, guilt and worthlessness. Such feelings can negatively impact an individual's day-to-day -day functioning and can lead to psychological health conditions like depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder and borderline personality disorder, close quote. For anyone who is currently going through this existential upheaval, these are some of the primary indicators. Shame and guilt induced by excessive expectations by the religion. Anger. This resentment towards the organisation for the pain, suffering and loss. Social withdrawal. Loss of confidence and loss of social group. Connected with that social avoidance. Insomnia. Induced by stress, anxiety and racing thoughts. Hopelessness. Pre-existing reality is found to be based on falsehoods. Sense of loss and grief brought on by significant negative cognitive events. Nightmares. Exhaustion. There are many others and I'm sure people listening to this who have gone through or are going through this will understand and relate to this. And so there are a great deal of traumatised people in between trying to process complex problems that you cannot even begin to understand as a believing Mormon. This difficulty in being able to empathise with ex-Mormons is likely caused by your wraparound existence within the echo chamber of LDS dogma and culture. I know you cannot understand why people like me turn away from a lifetime in a faith that we felt was every bit the kingdom of God on earth. But I don't expect you to get it. That would be an unfair imposition on your Mormon experience. But for those of us who are outside the Mormon infrastructure, looking through that window, we may understand your position if we remember that this was the place we occupied too. We used to be the kinds of people who, at least privately and confidently, knew we were set aside from the rest of the world, struggling to be humbly gracious in our privileged position of grace, offered to us by covenant from God. And all the while, in your wheat mindset, making sure that those who spoke out against the church were compartmentalised into that numerous club of sinners known as tares, the castouts, the weak ones, the unrighteous, the chaff in the wind, the apostates. 
sometimes thinking and then openly saying things like this. And these are comments I've seen many times, such as, leave the church alone, you've left it, so leave it alone. Or, that's all in the past, why don't you move on with your life? Or, that's certainly not what I've experienced in the church, you must be wrong. Or, stop being so bitter and angry, you're only holding yourself back. Although many would not wish to be so, reacting in this way to someone processing a turbulent faith crisis is simply cruel and embarrassingly ignorant. Every time a well-intentioned individual injects statements like these into the discussion, they have failed to do the most important thing, to suspend judgment. Now, I realise it isn't an inherent trait for some people to stop, think and consider the way we react to those we see as different. It takes time. Some people just aren't able to do that naturally. For some, being obtuse and ignorant seems to come very naturally, often to those who consider themselves most consecrated to fill that role. But such indifference is precisely why many good people are thankful to leave Mormonism behind. It reminds us of the cultural arrogance that perhaps drove them away in the first place. I think that inward-facing egotistical view of ex-members of the church is very starkly shown in the words of the notable Mormon academic apologist, Noel Reynolds. In describing those who have left Mormonism and who seek to question the teachings and policies of the church, he once said, quote, the overwhelming majority of LDS academics and intellectuals are active, faithful Latter-day Saints who find these detractors to be driven by a secret hate for a goodness they cannot understand or enjoy in their own terms. He also goes on to say, quote, When one has been so directly touched and benefited by God's love, one will treasure and protect that gift at all costs. It is a form of knowledge that only a fool would deny or compromise. Close quote. Now, at this point, I really want to stress how important it is to approach dialogue with people who have different views in a manner that is motivated by personal integrity. I realise that this is not always possible, especially when people are feeling raw about mistreatment or if they're on the defensive in a heated discussion. But when cool tongues and thoughtful minds prevail, then these values should guide us. I think this approach to dialogue is founded in human ethical principles, and those principles include sincerity, objectivity, humility, patience, clarity, and empathy. I am convinced that communication in the form of arguments, debates, 
whether they are in person or online, will be closer to achieving more productive ends for more people if these principles are followed. I've never met Noel Reynolds in person and I wouldn't even attempt to judge his character, his entire person, based solely on these two statements. We are multifaceted creatures that require time and additional information to make reasonably informed decisions. Yet, on social media, we seem to have millions of qualified psychologists and experts in science and the humanities who can read your words on their phone screens and know you better than you know yourself. It's remarkable. Social media is a brilliant tool with the most beautiful potential, but is very much an ego magnifier and a bullshit projector. So I'm troubled by Reynolds' comments. I believe they come from a position of privilege, first and foremost. I have no doubt that academics like him depend on their reputations to win over listeners or readers. That's the modus operandi of Mormon apologetics. So there is an implied appeal to authority in his judgments of ex-members. Because he's an academic, he must be listened to because there is more weight to his words. There is a collective sense of awe for academics who happen to be members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So much so that when they speak or if they write a book, their words are not only the wisest, but are also are apparently inspired by God. But this combination, I believe, in a population of people who are literally commanded not to question orthodoxy is a dangerous mix. There should be a separation of religious dogma and reliable peer-reviewed academic research. Surely the last 800 years of human progress has taught us this. Interestingly though, 10 or 20 years ago, I would probably have accepted that generalised conclusion of critics of Mormonism. However, I know that the representation of groups can't be viewed through binary filters. This is not what life is like in human communities across the world. People and their social groups are beautifully nuanced. So when Reynolds says that the critics are, quote, driven by a secret hate for a goodness they cannot understand or enjoy in their own terms, close quote, he is making a broad general judgment of those who speak out against the Mormon church. He has no logical foundation to characterise such a significant growing group of people in this way. It is neither true nor is it rational. In the other statement, quote, driven by a secret hate for a goodness they cannot understand or enjoy in their own terms, is found one of my, probably my favourite logical fallacies of anyone who is mainly motivated by 
the desire to discredit a perceived opponent, to attack the character of a person rather than to address their arguments. It's very poor form and lazy on their part. Noby Reynolds is either knowingly or unknowingly communicating an insult to anyone who speaks up against the Mormon church. By poisoning the well of the discussion and misrepresenting all critics of the church as hateful and unable to understand a Mormon brand of goodness, he is shifting the narrative from the facts and onto ir irrational emotion. Now, I would like to think the LDS scholars, some of whom are also very much motivated by having skin in the game as defenders of a faith that also provides them with an income, that they might try to have the scales fall from their eyes and consider the complex variety of questioning ex-Mormons and to genuinely ask, why have you left the church? But also, after they've asked the question, to genuinely listen carefully to the answers that are given. Perhaps I'm being overly optimistic. For learned Mormons, it must be extremely difficult to move away from the default preservation of pre-existing narratives to suspend that supercharged Jesus judgment and those philosophies of men mingled with scripture. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. In my own reading, I paid close attention to the short article written by Noby Reynolds. At the close of his comments, he provided only one source to back his claims about the educational supremacy of Mormons. He referenced a study carried out by Stan L. Albrecht and Tim B. Heaton, both LDS academics. This study claimed that at least in the late 80s and early 90s, generally speaking, religious people were more educated than secular or non-religious people. Noel Reynolds cited only this one source. He cherry-picked a study or peer-review article that fitted into his narrow view of detractors, ex-members or non-religious people. One article only. I believe the absence of more sources could very well be a red flag. Interestingly, one of the authors of that review, Stan Albrecht, has since left the Mormon Church. He was once president of Utah State University and specialised in sociology. More recently, in 2020, Professor Albrecht produced a study detailing the effects of members leaving the Mormon Church. In it, he explains the cognitive toll that ex-Mormons pay upon exiting the church. I wonder what Noel B. Reynolds would think of his research now that it does not reinforce his long-standing biases. Professor Albrecht is one of many scholars who has carried out peer-reviewed studies on the psychological effects of leaving a high-dependency religious sect. Although it would go against everything you've been told your entire life, 
I would urge active members of the church to look up these studies. They're available and to read them. At the very least, you'll have some idea of why so many ex-Mormons can't just, in your words, switch off or leave the church alone as you expect them to, like a switch. And you would be doing us a service. Or should inspirational people like Megan Phelps Roper just accept her lot in life and get on with it? Having been raised in arguably the most extreme of American Christian sects, the Westboro Baptist Church. Megan was a regular protester with other members of this fringe religious organisation who would gather to preach hateful rhetoric towards people in the LGBT community, the military, Jews, um, and these groups would be claimed to be sinners and they were worthy of damnation. She was socialised in an environment of intolerance, religious fundamentalism and ignorance. As a teenager, she introduced these campaigns of hate on the group's social media pages and it would be online that Megan came to realise the kind of person she was. As she engaged in conversations with people around the world with different ideologies, her mind was opened up to other people outside of her narrow, insular view. In 2012, she left the Westboro Baptist Church and has been a campaigner for empathetic dialogue with people across ideological divides. I consider Megan Phelps Roper to be an absolute hero of the modern age. She puts many to shame as a mature, compassionate and wise human being. She can describe this ideological locked-in state of mind far better than I ever could. She said this, quote, Doubt was nothing more than an epistemological humility. A deep and practical awareness that outside our sphere of knowledge there existed information and experiences that might show our position to be in error. Doubt causes us to hold a strong position a bit more loosely, such that an acknowledgement of ignorance or error doesn't crush our sense of self or leave us totally unmoored if our position proves untenable. Certainty is the opposite. It hampers inquiry and hinders growth. It teaches us to ignore evidence that contradicts our ideas and encourages us to defend our position at all costs, even as it reveals itself as indefensible. Certainty sees compromise as weak, hypocritical, evil, suppressing empathy and allowing us to justify inflicting horrible pain on others. Close quote. Now, for the sake of objective rigour, I really feel that those who are transitioning away from Mormonism 
who may be in the midst of that existential faith crisis or who may no longer be members would be able to process the very real trauma of recovery by understanding that we were once like our active LDS friends and family are now. Perhaps we were locked into that cognitive feedback loop and made those damning judgments of a group of people we were told in no uncertain terms were foolish, misled and even occupants of that great and spacious building. However, for the sake of impartiality, it has to be said that not every Mormon who considers his or herself as a faithful member is locked into that narrow, limited mindset that makes religiously motivated judgments. Active Mormons are also an extremely varied group and there are many kind, empathetic, loving and humble people among them. Mormons are a nuanced group also. Therefore, it is possible for the two directly opposed groups to increase the respect shown to one another and think carefully before we lash out in discussion threads on social media. I'm not suggesting that when a stranger on Facebook or Twitter takes their horribly inflated ego and stands on their personal LDS Ramiumpton tower to tear away at your character that you do nothing. Absolutely not. We have the inherent and unquestionable right to stand our ground, to take no shit and say our peace in the face of raw ignorance. And if things calm down, if people have level heads and there is room for a respectful debate, that is everyone's opportunity to learn what we can from each other. Sadly though, what I notice a lot of online, but also in our real day-to-day -day lives, is the tendency for true believing Mormons to engage in behaviours that are akin to an intervention for a wayward family member. Speaking as someone who was fully immersed in the world of Mormonism for over 40 years, I understand why they do this. I know the institutional dynamics. I understand the thought processes at work. And as I said in my first episode, it can be very difficult for your active Mormon friends and family to switch off all those programmed conditioned responses. It can be a card put through your door by the Relief Society president in your local area. It can be a voice message left on your phone by home or visiting teachers, although I think the name has changed there. It could be a knock at the door and an invitation back to church by the local missionaries. These days it's often a private message online that is the fulfilment of a ward council assignment, perhaps cloaked in the guise of some sort of genuine friendship. Often none of that is unconditional. None of it seems to be true altruism. None of it is disconnected from promised blessings from God for fulfilling those assignments. Now I know there are many Mormons who remain close friends with ex-members whose friendships have no strings attached whatsoever. 
those connections are genuine and have nothing to do with adherence to the church. I love those kinds of people so much. I really respect them. I have some very close friends from my childhood who remain like brothers and sisters to me. I love them and I know the feeling is mutual. However, knowing how the Mormon church operates, how paramount a priority it is to keep measuring its own growth and to guilt trip the regular members into reactivation drives. Those cards in the post, those messages left on your voicemail and those knocks at your door are often found with nothing but strings attached to them. And I think more than anything else, that's extremely sad. Yet not all is lost. I opened this discussion with reference to the divisive and toxic nature of many online discussions surrounding politics, religion and other touchy subjects. In the years I've spent on social media, teaching in schools and trying to constantly learn how to understand our world, I've found these methods of conducting dialogue with others and of trying to make sense of everything to be the most important. Megan Phelps Roper is a prime example of these wonderful guidelines. And, and I've got to re-emphasise those ethical principles that should be woven into everything that we do. Sincerity, objectivity, humility, patience, clarity, empathy. So for the sake of a better society, for more productive communication between people who are different from each other, I believe these seven behaviours are how we should be or become. One, be an asker of questions. In reality, we have the great philosopher Socrates to thank for this method of inquiry. Thinking about good questions that would expand our knowledge, encourage logical thinking and chase away ignorance is the first part. The second part is asking those questions. The third part is internalising and processing the answers. We need to do something with the information we receive. The source of Socrates' wisdom was his open mind more than his knowledge. He was an expert listener from everything that we know about him. We should try to be also. I've known a few people both in and out of the LDS church who could not stop talking and gave little opportunity for others to speak. It's a shame they don't listen more, the things that they could learn. As a true believing Mormon, asking questions, it's almost counterintuitive, but we all need to try. Number two, buy, borrow, and read as many books as you possibly can. The great Hungarian novelist Laszlo Krasnohori observed, quote, Devices are not dangerous for literature. People can be dangerous for literature. People, for example, who do not read, close quote. 
Don't worry if you don't like to read much, but give it a try. If you choose to read widely, deeply and broadly, you're letting yourself become more open to a range of concepts that can benefit yourself and those you communicate with. A literate and open-minded people can be a necessary defence against tyranny and controlling systems. Remember, the books you read don't require likes from your social group. They don't require ignorant comments that divert your attention. They cost money, they require your time, and they do not distract. So, read more books. Three, be considerate of others. Respect them as autonomous agents. I know that I'm not the centre of the universe, and I know that many others are very conscious of their comparative smallness. But when I've observed some people as they have conversations online, it's as if they expect to be heard, as if the world owes them its attention. Their reactions and comments contain ire, spite, arrogance. Often instead of reading, listening, considering and thinking, they just lash out with insults and comments that are specifically designed to elevate their status at the expense of others. It will never be possible to heal division and further social progress if we cannot suspend our selfish needs and respect others by simply allowing them their right to dignity within a conversation. Number four. Be a responsible user of social media. Take responsibility for your page and think through your posts, especially if you engage in deep conversations about politics or religion or something else. In my experience, and I know this is anecdotal, but also in the experience of many others, a sure sign, a red flag that allows you to determine if someone might be more liberal with the truth is when they post and repost other people's images, articles, statements or memes to their own pages relentlessly, constantly, rather than creating and posting their own original content. Apart from the pleasant family stuff, social media is really a pig slurry of recycled bullshit that the algorithms are designed to funnel into the news feeds of people who are ignorantly happy to splash on their own pages day after day. And so this echo chamber, this spiralling negative feedback loop that operates through content that mainly elicits negative emotions just unfolds online. The ironic twist is that many of these social media warriors are convinced that they are the most woke in the world, that their label as conspiracy theorists is a badge of honour, something that we should be impressed by. One of the most used words by self-professed experts on social media is the word truth. And it is a regular word posted by like-minded followers who have automatically clicked the like button. The part of the brain that creates this favourable response is the area that controls emotions. 
It is an emotional response rather than a rational response. So we need to learn to harness and take more responsibility for our social media pages if we want to seriously contribute positively to our world. Five, be aware of nuance. As I previously made reference to, people are complicated. To place individuals into rigid categories is to lack social and emotional wherewithal. I cannot count how many times I've posted an agreement or disagreement statement on social media and been judged by others as liberal or with some other vague and inaccurate term. I often refer to my inner conservative. Although it is a little tongue-in-cheek, I'm referring to my complexity. I agree with liberal and progressive political theories and policies, but I also ascribe to some conservative and traditional policies and ideas. Many of us are like this. So instead of unleashing our utterly ridiculous value judgments and insults, we need to try speaking with people in order to gauge those wonderful multiple shades of difference. Six, don't be a cherry picker. As Professor Noby Reynolds did and as other academics who have conflicts of interest often do. They select and publish sources of information that are conspicuous by virtue of the absence of key facts. Be a rigorous and fantastically honest pursuer of truth. If you are only interested in your side of any issue, if you are perfectly comfortable demonising an opponent, if you think your tribe is the only solution to planet Earth's greatest problems, then you will be accustomed to cherry-picking your information to maximise your argument. It is nothing less than dishonest. Sadly, in the world of online discussion, many people who pick convenient cherries believe themselves to be proficient researchers. And the last one, number seven, be empathetic. Social media is a tool that has the potential to inform, to enhance, to include, to motivate and unite. And I think in some places and spaces that it does do that. But it is a perfect tool for prodding and provoking the inner irrational beast. As soon as it is viewed as a platform to garner followers and likes using insults, misinformation and mockery, it has ceased to be a tool for social value. What we read and watch on social media is little more than a snapshot of a version of reality. We cannot presume to know a person when we have one heated exchange with them on a discussion thread. A question I always ask a fellow debater who has made a miraculous judgment about me online is how long have we known each other? If you are an active Mormon or an ex-Mormon 
who feels confident that you have developed a full psychological evaluation of a complete stranger online, then I think you've failed to remember the value of empathetic dialogue. We don't have to have lived the life of the people we briefly engage with online to accept the value of their own experiences. Reserve your judgment, take time to read, listen, and get to know them. So, these are the seven suggestions for more open, respectful and intelligent dialogues that are grounded very much in sound social research. They can be applied in our day-to-day -day lives as easily as they can online, but they will work if utilised more by people, if they genuinely want to dismantle walls remove barriers and help make the world a better place. They won't work unless people are willing to take a look into that opaque window in their mind and soul to surrender egotistical attitudes. I find myself having to check myself and think about the way that I speak to people online and in real life to make sure I am following these principles as well. I feel now it would be remiss of me not to direct my attention to those who are finding it difficult. Those who might feel alone in their crisis of faith. Depending on where you are in the world, you may feel very isolated in your experience. Perhaps you're the solo member of your very big Mormon family who is distraught. You may feel like you're spiralling into some sort of existential pit. You might be young, maybe in your 20s. You could be in your senior years, having followed the Mormon path since childhood. And only recently you've come to that realisation that literally rocks your universe. To those people, I want to say, you'll somehow manage to get it together. This is a beautiful, comforting thought. We are alive at the same time as each other. And there are always versions of ourselves somewhere else in the world having similar experiences. People who get it. People who really get each other. In a conversation I recently had with a friend, this amazing person said to me that much of the reason why she copes with her faith crisis aftermath is because of the ex-Mormon community. That's a lifesaver. That can help you sleep better at night. It's enough to make the difference between a day spent in bed or spent getting on with your life. No matter what you are faced with from the religion of your life or from some of its members, you have to find a community that validates your reality and helps bear you up. It is my deepest hope that people who are victims of controlling systems from any background or persuasion have a healthy environment to explore those doubts, ask all their questions and find peace. And as I come to the end of this episode, I, I really feel this has to be said.
I expect no one to take anything I say at face value. I'm not infallible. So I hope that people use their capacities for critical thought and apply them to things that I am saying. Question me and see if there might be any bias in my comments. There, there could be. Please contact me if you want to. I absolutely welcome it. But I just ask that people remember one thing when they communicate to be respectful. I hope all those who are going through a faith crisis or a crisis of identity will find anchor points and people who really genuinely listen to them. Thank you for listening.